Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Uh, It's on page 785 of my Bible. I don't know that that will help you. Uh, I could tell you it's between Nahum and Zephaniah. I don't know if that will be helpful uh, either. Uh, If you just start with Matthew and then start flipping back into your Old Testament, you'll eventually uh, get there. Uh, Parents, you can dismiss your children for Children's Church at this time if you'd like to do that. And as you're finding Habakkuk chapter 1, let me give you a little bit of background that might help us understand the passage that we're going to read. Uh, You might remember that after King Solomon, uh, Israel as a nation was divided into two along northern and southern lines. Uh, Here's a map you can look at. Uh, You have the kingdom of Israel. It can be kind of confusing. The kingdom of Israel in the north with its capital in Samaria. Then you also have the kingdom of Judah in the south, this area right here with its capital in Jerusalem. And in the course of time, you might also remember that each of these kingdoms was exiled uh, by different enemies. The kingdom of Israel in the north was exiled by the Assyrians in the year 722, while Judah in the south was exiled later by the Babylonians, who were sometimes also known as the Chaldeans in the year 586. Now, Habakkuk's ministry took place in the southern kingdom of Judah, after the exile of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722, but before the exile of Judah in 586. So Habakkuk is prophesying after Israel had been exiled, but before Judah was exiled in 586. You might also know that uh, Habakkuk is categorized or classified as one of the minor prophets. That's not a reference to the relative importance of his message. It just has to do with the length of of his writing. Uh, We have 12 minor prophets that are relatively short in comparison to the major prophets. Just think of the three chapters we have here in Habakkuk and compare that with the 52 chapters we have in Jeremiah, who is one of the major prophets. Uh, Also, I might point out that the ministry of Habakkuk is somewhat unique because ordinarily the prophets are sent by God with a word to bring before the people. Ordinarily, it was a word of blessing, promise in the future or a word threatening a curse for their disobedience. But Habakkuk is unique because he's not bringing the word of God before the people. He's actually appearing before God with a question or a complaint. So in that way, Habakkuk is unique among the minor prophets. Now before I read this, let me also perhaps explain the structure of the passage that we're about to read. We're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 1 and conclude in chapter 2 verse 4. Um, But if I point out the structure, it might be easier for you to follow along. In the first four verses, Habakkuk is bringing his question before God. It's a question about the corruption he sees taking place in Judah. And then beginning in verse 5, we read God's reply to that initial question. That runs all the way through verse 11. But God's reply prompts another question in Habakkuk's mind. And he begins asking that in verse 12, and that runs through the first verse of chapter 2. And then God replies to Habakkuk's second question, starting in chapter 2, verse 2. And we're just going to read the first few verses of God's response to Habakkuk's second question, ending in verse 4, 
which actually is the verse that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 1, which was our assurance of pardon this morning, and the verse that was so important and significant in Martin Luther's understanding of the gospel. So it is appropriate that we're considering this passage in Habakkuk this morning on Reformation Sunday. So what we have in these verses is a question raised by Habakkuk, followed by God's reply, and a second question raised by Habakkuk and God's reply to that question. So with that being said, uh, we're going to start with Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. If you'd please stand for the reading now of God's Word. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. You know, there are certain things that perplex me, certain things that I don't understand. For example, I don't understand why the word D-O-U-G-H is pronounced do but the word R-O-U-G-H is pronounced rough. I don't understand that. 
doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand, as Stephen Wright, the comedian, has commented, why we drive on parkways and park on driveways. doesn't make any sense, does it? Now, I may have mentioned this before, that I'm perplexed that when I'm in a fast food line and I order french fries and I ask my wife if she wants any, she says no. And the first thing she does when, we get, when I get my food in the car is ask me for some french fries. <laughs> I don't understand that. That perplexes me. There are a lot of little things like that that I find perplexing. But there are also some things that perplex me that are not so little. Uh, my younger brother uh, was diagnosed with leukemia at the age of around one and was taken to St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee and was part of an experimental treatment group in the early 70s. Every child in that treatment group died from cancer, except my brother, who actually survived the treatment but with severe disabilities and never developed any capacities beyond that of a two-year-old. He never fed himself, never dressed himself, never was able to walk. And I watched him live in a body that did not work for 33 years. I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense to me. Can, can you explain why that would happen? Why God would permit that to happen? Can you unravel my perplexity about that? I don't get it. I'm perplexed by things, and in our passage, so is Habakkuk. He's perplexed. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. He's confused, and he asks God why. And all of us can relate to his question. We can all cite our examples of our perplexity at God's providence. But what we learn from this passage is that our righteous God instructs us to live by faith in light of life's perplexities. Our righteous God is instructing us to live by faith in the light of life's perplexities. And if we read this passage carefully, and if we listen to it carefully, we can actually gain a lot of insights about what living by faith in light of life's perplexities actually looks like. What does it look like to live by faith in light of these perplexities? Well, we see four H's of living by faith to consider this morning. Four H's. And the first is to deal honestly with your questions. Deal honestly with your questions. We see this in verses 1 through 4. We see it again in verse 13 in Habakkuk chapter 1. We see it again in verse 17. Living by faith in light of life's perplexities involves dealing honestly with the questions that you have. God actually invites us to come to him and name our perplexity, our confusion, our pain. He doesn't call us to ignore it or suppress it or deny it. We're allowed to face our questions squarely and to voice our confusion. Notice that Habakkuk is never rebuked for any of these things by God. God is big enough to handle your confusion. And he allows us to come before him honestly in naming it and expressing it. But what exactly is Habakkuk's confusion? What's his question here? Well, in the first few verses, it's this. How can a just God allow injustice to thrive and continue without punishment? How can a God of justice allow injustice to thrive and continue without punishing it? And God gives a response to Habakkuk's question. And his response is, 
I am going to address, address the injustice. I'm raising up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, as an, instrument of judge, as, a, as an instrument of judgment. But this raises an even more urgent question in Habakkuk's mind. Now his question is, how can God empower and lift up wickedness for his own purposes and use it? And how can he use those wicked instruments to judge wicked instruments that are less wicked than the ones he's raising up? The cure seems worse than the disease to Habakkuk. And he doesn't understand it. He's perplexed. He's confused. And what about you? What perplexes you and confuses you as you think about God's providential ruling of the world? Is it being perplexed as to why children are born with defects? Why does that happen? Why does God allow that to happen? Why are some children born into homes where their parents physically and emotionally abuse them? When all of us know godly couples who deeply desire to have children and are unable to have children because of infertility. Why does that happen? What, what makes sense of that? Why are there some people who are single who desperately desire to have a spouse while there are others who want nothing more than to get out of a marriage because it feels like torture to them. Why do these things happen in a universe governed by a just God? Now, I know the general theological answer to these questions. I do. I know the general theological answer to the question. It's because of sin. It's because we live in a world under the curse where calamities and sorrows and griefs and loss and bad things happen. I know that. But you realize that that doesn't really answer any of the questions when it gets down to specifics. In other words, why is it this child? Why is it this family? Why is it this person and not those? I mean, to speak frankly, it just all seems quite random to me. There doesn't seem to be any rhythm or rhyme or pattern in it. It's not that we can look at it and say, well, these are good Christian people. So these things don't happen to them, but, but these are bad people, so these things happen to them. It doesn't work that way. There's no pattern to it that we can detect. It doesn't make sense. And to put it simply, I just really don't understand what God is doing a lot of the time. I don't understand what he's doing in my life, in your life, in the lives of those around me. I don't understand what he's doing in the world a lot of the time. And I'm guessing that you don't either. And Habakkuk doesn't either. And we can give honest expression to that. That we just don't get it. We don't understand it. And we can give honest expression to our perplexity and confusion and still be living by faith. But there is a danger here in being honest about our perplexity. There's a fine line between being honest about our confusion and our questions and accusing God. And we must not do the latter of those. Uh, C.S. Lewis expresses this danger well. Uh, some of you might know that C.S. Lewis was a bachelor for most of his life, and he met an American woman late in his life, and they got married. And her name was Joy Davidman. And when C.S. Lewis married Joy Davidman, she was in remission from cancer. But shortly after they were married, the cancer came back and it eventually claimed her life. Now, can you imagine C.S. Lewis's perplexity? I mean, Lord, why would you allow me to remain a bachelor for most of my life? And then when I finally did get married, you took her from me. She got cancer and, and died. 
And so he wrote a book about his grief in that process. It's called A Grief Observed. And in that book, he, he writes this as he was processing his grief. In the midst of that, he says, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. How do we avoid those dreadful conclusions? How did C.S. Lewis avoid such conclusions? Well, while we can start with being honest about our questions, we don't end there. We don't end there. There's more to living by faith in light of life's perplexities than just being honest about our questions and our confusion. What keeps us from these erroneous kinds of conclusions is the next H, the second H. Now, I want you to notice what frames Habakkuk's questions in verses 12 and 13. Because what Habakkuk does in verses 12 and 13 is very, very important. What we notice is that his questions arise within a framework of what he believes to be true about God. He states his confession about who God is, and that is his starting point. In other words, in the midst of his perplexities, Habakkuk starts with what he knows to be true about God. He holds fast to what he knows. So that's the second one. Hold fast to what you know to be true about God in the face of those perplexities. Again, Habakkuk's questions arise within this framework in which he confesses that God is pure. He's holy. He's righteous. He's just. And he's sovereign. This is his starting point. So he holds fast to what he knows to be true about God, and he allows this to actually create the tension of the question. I mean, think about it. Isn't the reason Habakkuk has so many questions about the injustice and wickedness that he sees is precisely because he believes that God is sovereign and that he's just and that he's good and that he's pure and that he's holy? This is what's causing the question to arise in Habakkuk's mind to begin with. What he sees in his circumstances doesn't seem to match what he knows about God, but he doesn't allow what he sees in his circumstances to be the determining factor of what he believes about God. He doesn't allow it to become the determining factor of what he believes about God. So living by faith means starting not with what we see around us, Living by faith means starting with what we know to be true about God. And what exactly is it that Habakkuk knows about God? How could Habakkuk be so sure that God is sovereign and that he's wise and that he's holy and that he's just and that he's faithful and good? How could Habakkuk know that? Well, Habakkuk knows the mighty redemptive acts of God on behalf of his people. He knows that God has acted redemptively for the sake of his people, expressing his covenant love and faithfulness. He also knows the law of God that reveals the holy and just character of this God. Habakkuk knows those things, and he begins with that certainty of who God has shown himself to be. But you know what? You know more you know more than Habakkuk knew. You know that God 
has performed a mightier redemptive act for the sake of his people. You know that God sent his son to die in the place of sinners so that they might be reconciled to him. So when we look at our circumstances, we can know that these circumstances are arranged by the God who withheld not his one and only son so that he could restore fellowship with us. We know that regardless of what our circumstances are. Paul started with that certainty. Paul was rooted in that certainty. In the familiar words of Romans 8.28, Paul writes this. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, how can Paul write that we know that? I mean, this is Paul. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been beaten. He'd been stoned. And Paul's saying, we know, we can have certainty that all these things are working together for good. How does he know that? And how can we know that? Well, just keep reading what Paul says. He gets to verses 31 and 32, and this is what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And here it is. Here's, here's Paul's foundation. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the ground of Paul's confidence. The one who gave us his son is the one who loves us with certainty, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so, do you want to know if God is just? Do you want to know that God is just? In the midst of all your circumstances, Look to the cross. Start there. Where God poured out his justice against sinners on his son. God is just. Do you want to know if God is wise in his governance of the world? Look first to the cross and see where justice and mercy come together. Do you want to know if God is faithful? Look to the cross. Do you want to know if God is good? Look to the cross. Do you want to know if God loves you? Look to the cross. Where beyond a shadow of a doubt, God displays his justice, his mercy, his faithfulness, his goodness, his love. I may have mentioned this before, but there's a book written some years ago. Um, I've not read it. I don't plan to read it, but it has an interesting title. It's something like, uh, everything I ever really needed to know I learned in kindergarten. I have no idea even what the book's about. But I think we can modify that and arrive at a very important statement. And that's everything that I ever really needed to know, I learned at the foot of the cross. Everything I really needed to know, I learned at the foot of the cross. Where again, beyond the shadow of a doubt, God shows himself to be good and wise and loving, regardless of what our circumstances around us might look like. But not only are we to hold fast to what we know, Living by faith in light of life's perplexities also means that we're humble in light of everything we don't know. And that's the third H. Be humble living in light of life's perplexities. When Habakkuk raises the second question, note his posture at the start of chapter 2. What's he doing at the start of chapter 2? He says, I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself in the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my, my complaint. You know what he's doing there? He's waiting. Habakkuk raises a second question, states it, and then 
He's waiting. Waiting is a posture of humility. But what we could say even more specifically is that Habakkuk is acknowledging that there's more to the picture than what he presently sees. He doesn't see everything. He's finite. He's limited in his perspective. And you know what? There's more to the picture than any of us can see right now. There's more to the picture. I don't see the whole thing. So ultimately, I'm not really competent to judge whether any given event is good or wise or just. I don't have all the pieces of the puzzle. And so in light of all of these circumstances that perplex us, we are to be humble as we think about them. You know, I, I very much enjoy uh, watching Bob Ross paint. You all know who Bob Ross is? He's on PBS sometimes. He died five, six, seven years ago, I think. Um, but he's known as the happy painter, has his afro. Uh, he looks like this. This is Bob Ross. I love to watch Bob Ross paint. I know his paintings get criticized sometimes, but it's fascinating to watch because he makes it look so easy. Uh, but I must confess, every time I watch Bob Ross paint, I'm convinced that he's messed up. And, and, and I, I should learn that, you know, he's probably going to make this right. But every time I watch it, I think, mm, no, that, that's not going to look right. There, there's just something about that part that he put on the canvas that, that he's not going to be able to make fit in this time. And it's usually a stroke that's kind of too big or too dark, and it just doesn't quite fit with what you're seeing. But then he keeps painting by the end of the show. It always looks just right. It looks like it was meant to be there all along. And you know what? If, if Bob Ross can take those kinds of strokes on the canvas and fit them into a beautiful portrait, don't you think God is able to do that with the big and dark strokes in our lives as he's painting the portrait of our lives on the canvas of history? Don't you think he's able to do that? You know, we just don't see the whole picture yet. So there's some things in our lives and in our world that just look too big and too dark that they can't ever be made right. They can't ever be good. But humbly wait. Just, just wait because you don't see the whole picture yet. We're limited in our perspective. And it's true. There's a lot of things. I, just, I don't see the wisdom or the goodness in certain things and God's governance of the world. Yeah, that's right. I don't see it. And that's okay. I don't have to see it. What I have to do is be humble and trust the God who has shown himself to be good and faithful and loving and wise and just at the cross is doing so in all circumstances. But there's one more H to consider in verses 2 through 4 in chapter 2. We learn that living by faith in light of life's perplexities means living in hope. Living in hope. You know, these last verses here encourage us that all will one day be made plain and clear. What God is doing will be made plain and clear. We will be able to see faith will be made sight. And you know what? It may be even this sight of glory where that faith is made sight. I mean, how many of us can look back to certain disappointments or griefs or pain or confusion or perplexity and now we see clearly the wisdom in it and the love of God in it? And we thank him for those things because we see more of the picture now. So it might happen this side of glory where we see the wisdom and justice and love and goodness of God. But it might not be in this life either. We might have to wait a long time to come to that understanding and realization to be able to see the wisdom. 
I don't think in this life that I'll come to a much better understanding of why that stuff happened to my brother or why that happened to my family. Just have to wait. But there will come a day when we will all be able to see the wisdom of everything that God has done. There come a day when we're able to see clearly and acknowledge that yes, you have done all things well and the judge of all the earth has done what is right. And then we actually have the beginnings of the dawn of this light. We have the beginnings of this promise already come to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because, you know, another thing the cross teaches us is that when things look the bleakest, when things couldn't seem any more dark or messed up, when there's seemingly only despair and loss and darkness and grief and meaninglessness and hopelessness and the triumph of evil, just wait. Even in those moments, just wait because even in the midst of that, God is doing something glorious and joyous for his people. The cross and resurrection teaches us to believe that. This is the promise of God through our risen Lord Jesus. And this is what allows us to live in hope. So, living by faith means that you deal honestly with your perplexity. You can bring those things before God. But it also means that you hold fast to what you know to be true about God in light of the person and work of Jesus through his cross and resurrection. And it means that you're humble in light of all that you don't know and all that you can't see. And it means that you live in hope in the promises of God. And this faith in God can take us to where it eventually takes Habakkuk, whose letter ends with this resounding note of faith. So may God give us the grace that our faith would be as firm and unmovable as Habakkuk's is here at the end, even in the light of life's perplexity. So let this be our confession. And this is how the letter of Habakkuk ends. He writes, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In light of all those perplexities and confusions and difficulties and pains, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we confess and acknowledge that you are good, that you are just, that in all things you do what is right. The person and work of your son Jesus on our behalf confirms that for us. Help us to hold fast to that in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of pain and sorrow and confusion and perplexity. And we thank you for the hope that you have granted to us, that in all circumstances we can know that you're working all things together for good and we can sing out to you, blessed be your name. And we await that day when all things will be made clear and we will be able to see your wisdom and celebrate your wisdom in all things that you've worked for your own glory and for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.